you absorb things, you walk around the world, you see things, you read things, you hear things and so on. And what your brain is constantly doing is remixing all that stuff. So it's bending and breaking and blending all of the things that you absorb and spitting out new versions of it. Welcome to Teach Me Something New. I'm your host, Britt Morin, and this is a production of iHeartRadio and Britt Co. All my life, everyone's told me I should focus on being good at one thing. But the truth is, I'm curious about a lot of things. But how do you learn about everything? The answer, make the world's best experts teach you in less than an hour. So come along with me as we all learn something new. We are taught as young kids that we are either left brain or right brain people. We're either creative or logical. Yet as we find out more about the brain, we've started to realize these lines are much more blurred than we originally thought. Our brains are a mystery that even the most talented neuroscientists can't solve. But our guest today is exploring every corner of it to try and understand it a little bit more. I'm here today with David Eagleman, a neuroscientist at Stanford University and best-selling author. He's the co-founder of Neosensory and BrainCheck. David also released a documentary called The Creative Brain, which seeks to answer questions like, what is creativity? Why do we create? And what goes into the creative process? By talking to artists from across the creative spectrum. I'm so excited to talk to David today about how our minds operate through the secret world of the subconscious and what it truly means to be creative. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you, Britt. So great to be here. You've done quite a few things in the world of neuroscience and the brain. Uh, were, were you like geeking out on the brain when you were a little kid? <laughs> Is this like uh, your fascination of the human body? I, I actually wasn't. I majored in British and American literature as an undergrad. And it wasn't until my senior year that I took a neuroscience class. And then I geeked out on it. Then I thought it was the coolest thing I'd come across. What was it about the neuroscience class that really intrigued you? I think it's that I'd taken a lot of philosophy classes, which are all trying to, you know, understand the self. And what you learn from these philosophy classes is that you run up against these sort of areas that you just can't bring an answer to. You spin into these philosophical conundrums and there's no particular answer. And I realized that neuroscience is a way to get a level deeper and find answers to these really good questions. Okay, so you take the neuroscience class and you're like, great, I want to be a neuroscientist. And then it was like game over. Yeah, I had been studying lots of science. I mean, I'd been studying lots of space physics and engineering and stuff like that. So I had happily, luckily, I had the qualifications to get into graduate school. And then that's what I've been doing ever since. Got it. And what is the most surprising discovery you've learned about the brain since you began studying it? You know, to my mind, the most surprising thing is that when I was a first year graduate student, I went to the giant neuroscience convention where there were tens of thousands of neuroscientists from all over the planet. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this whole thing is going to get solved by the time I'm out of graduate school. And so the surprise to me has been how many enduring mysteries we still have. I actually wrote um, the cover article in 2006 to Discover magazine called 10 Unsolved Mysteries of the Brain. And they are still unsolved. All these years later, they're still equally as unsolved as they were. Questions like, what is consciousness? You know, how do you put together a bunch of pieces and parts and get it to feel like something? Or what is intelligence? Or why do we sleep? Or um, what are emotions exactly? All these, all these things that there are very deep mysteries on. Um, we're still plugging away, but we don't have the answers yet. 
Which, by the way, was my biggest discovery, too, because a few years ago, you know, Britain Co.'s whole mission that we began the company with 10 years ago was like, we want to help women become more creative. And so naturally, I found that women either thought they were creative or they weren't. And I started wondering, like, is there something hardwired in our brains that makes us creative people or not? And then I met this guy named Adam Grant at a random dinner party who's now this like crazy huge celebrity, I guess. He's been on the show too. Go listen to the episode. Um, And Adam started directing me to all kinds of interesting neuroscientists studying creativity. I think you're one of them way back in the day. And every person I talked to was like, yeah, we don't actually know much about it. Uh, I was like, what do you guys do all day, you neuroscientists at your convention? Like, (laughs) do you think there's progress happening and why can't we figure this out? Oh, massive progress has been happening. Um, But what we're dealing with is the most complicated thing we've ever found uh, on the planet. It's, you know, just think about the fact that your brain is made of 86 billion neurons. That's a specialized cell type in the brain. And each one of those neurons is as complicated as the city of San Francisco. Every one of those neurons has the entire human genome in it. It's trafficking millions of proteins around in very complicated cascades. Each is connected to about 10,000 of its neighbors, which means you have hundreds of trillions of connections in the brain. And each of these little neurons is like a living creature. It's it's feeling around. It's seeking new connections. Um, it's got its own life and death to worry about. And so what you're talking about is this forest of 86 billion little organisms interacting. And it's a level of complexity that bankrupts our language. And, uh, you know, we're just trying to figure out the the general principles. Now, that said, there's been you know enormous amount of progress. The, the problem is our technology still stinks. And so even our fanciest brain imaging technology is very crude. Um, Mother Nature has protected the brain inside this, you know, armored bunker plating of the of the skull. And so it's not even easy to get at the thing. Um, and these are these are the reasons, I think, why we don't have the problem solved yet. All of those put together. Okay, well, let's talk about what we do know about the brain. You once mentioned that you can live a totally normal life with only half of your brain. Is that true? That is true. And that's because, um, you know, some kids have this very terrible type of epilepsy that essentially affects half of their brain and it gives them seizures every few minutes and so on. And the only operation that fixes this is called a hemispherectomy, where you take out an entire half of the brain, a hemisphere of the brain. And the, the thing is, if you do this before the age of, let's say, six, the kids are fine. They, they tend to have a slight limp on the other side of their body, but cognitively they're fine. And this is because the remaining half of the brain just changes the way it's wiring up so that it takes over all the functions. And um, it's, it's just completely remarkable. We don't know how to build technology like this. And by the way, this is the topic of my latest book, Live Wired, is this issue that, you know, we build everything with uh, hardware and software, but it is what we build is nothing like this. I mean, I can't run over half my laptop with my truck and hope that it's still going to function just fine. But you can do that with the human brain. You can remove huge wow. chunks of it, especially in, in uh, you know, childhood, and it'll still just rewire itself and work fine. But not in adulthood. So if you had like a right. traumatic accident or, a, you know, head injury, you so can't it, really change it. it. Exactly. But it's not an all or none. It's sort of a, a diminishing slope. And so what happens is, you know, the older you are, when you get uh, damaged to your brain, the less it can recover. This is just the general story that um, 
you know, live wiring or what we call in the field brain plasticity diminishes as you age. And that's actually not a bad thing. What it represents is that your brain is figuring out the world and how to operate in the world. And, you know, you know how to eat and walk and, you know, interact with people and run businesses and stuff like that. And so your brain gets sort of increasingly shaped a particular way, uh, which is good. It means you can operate in the world, but it means that you have a more crystalline intelligence rather than a fluid intelligence that uh, that children have. Mm, I totally get it. And so if you're removing a whole hemisphere of the brain, a hemispherectomy, is that what you said? That's right. Exactly. That's, that's a very cool word. Uh, I have to imagine that it's not true that people are left brain or right brain because <laughs> you would that's think that then they, they're either not creative or not logical, depending on which hemisphere is removed. Is that right? Uh, that's exactly right. The, 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 the left brain, right brain thing has been a myth that's uh, sort of been an interesting sticky myth. But um, the fact is that the two hemispheres are really similar to one another. The only real difference is that the left hemisphere is involved in finer movements and the right hemisphere is involved in sort of uh, broader or grosser motor movements. And so what that means is that our language ends up in our left hemisphere. You know, how you're moving your lips and larynx and all that stuff that ends up in your left hemisphere. And whereas on the right, it's more, you know, music and so on. <clears throat> but otherwise, uh, they're, they're essentially equivalent. What are the other popular myths about the brain that you can dispel for us? Well, I, the main one that I see popping up all the time is this idea that we only use 10 percent of our brain. And there are all these great movies, you know, like Lucy and Limitless and so on. But it's completely not true. We use 100 percent of our brains all the time. Even when you're asleep, your brain is screaming with activity. Any neuron in the brain that we measure is firing, you know, let's say tens or hundreds of times per second. Um, so, you know, your brain is constantly on the move. It takes 20 percent of your body's energy. Um, so anyway, the idea, I think the reason wow. that's a sticky myth is because it gives the hope that, oh, if I could just figure this out, I'd be, you know, so much smarter. But in fact, you're about as smart as you're going to get. And so is there a percentage of the brain that we're, we're not using sometimes or it's always 100 percent we're using every part of those 86 billion neurons <laughs> at all times? Yeah, um, your, your brain is always getting used. And uh, I mean, there are times, of course, where you're maybe not tasting or not looking at something or not listening to something. And so that, you know, you're those parts of your brain are a little bit less active in those moments. But in general, the the whole distribution of the territory in the brain has to do with what is getting used and what is active. And so your brain is actually quite fluid in the sense of re, you know, changing up its territory all the time based on what is getting used. And in fact, uh, I, I don't know if you know this, Britt, but I proposed last year a new, a completely new framework for why we dream at night. Do you know about this? Oh, uh, no, but yeah. I'm obsessed with why we dream at night and okay. what our dreams mean. If you know any dream decoders, I want them to come on this podcast. because <laughs> I've got weird dreams. My husband says he doesn't dream and I'm so confused by this. Ah, he actually does dream. Uh, and the only reason I know that is because everybody dreams. If you next time you see your husband having rapid eye movement during sleep, um, just, you know, wake him up at that moment and, and say, hey, what were you just oh. thinking? And then he'll tell you, OK, I was in a. I was riding a camel through a meadow and there were leprechauns and whatever. So uh, everybody dreams. It's just that people don't always remember their dreams. So what is the latest in dream science with the brain that I need to know about? Yeah, it's <clears throat> the latest in dream science is this. Um, it all has to do with the plasticity of the brain. Here's the thing. If I blindfold you and I put you in a brain scanner, the part of your brain that we think of as the visual part will start getting taken over by touch, by hearing, 
by memorization of vocabulary words, all kinds of stuff starts taking over that territory because your brain says, oh, I see. There's no more light coming through the eyes. I guess it must mean that um, that Brit's gone blind now. And so the whole thing starts readjusting. The surprise in neuroscience has been how fast this can happen. And some data came out some years ago that showed that within about an hour, you can start seeing the first signs of takeover of the visual system. And so what I realized, my student and I were working on this, we realized because of the rotation of the planet, we end up in the dark for half the time. And obviously what we care about is the evolutionary time, not our modern electricity blessed time. Um, and so you end up in the dark and that means the visual system is at risk of getting taken over. In the dark, you can still hear and touch and smell and taste, but you can't see anymore. And so what we realized is the brain needs some way to defend its visual system against takeover from the other senses. And that's what dreams are. So about every 90 minutes, you just you have this very specialized circuitry that just blasts activity into the visual cortex to just keep it defended uh, against takeover. And so wow. we have now studied this a bunch of ways. We, we looked at 25 different species of primates and how plastic they are and how much they dream. And it turns out this correlates perfectly. So the more you know flexible the brain is as a species, the more dream time you have. Um, and oh, so it's, I think I have a lot of dream time. Does that mean I have a really plastic plasticity ish <laughs> brain? <laughs> well, you probably have the same amount of dream time as everyone else, but it sounds like you remember your dreams better. Yeah. Is that a different function in the brain? Yeah. Generally, the parts involved in memory tend to be shut down during dreaming so that while you're having these bizarro experiences, it's not particularly important for your brain to write this down as life experience. So generally what happens is when you wake up, you remember your dreams, but within about 15 minutes, you forget it because it's not getting transferred from short term into long term memory. Oh. It sounds like maybe you remember your dreams a little bit better. So you're transferring well, I'm them. I'm fascinated by the idea that dreams are part of the subconscious telling you about what maybe your deepest fears or anxieties are or 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 wants are. Um, and so I, I try to remember them because I'm like, oh, my gosh, I keep having this dream that I'm like constantly late. And a lot of my dreams are anxiety dreams. So I don't know what this yeah. says about me and the other parts of my brain mental health wise. But like I'm late. I didn't turn it in like I got you know, someone didn't like what I did. It's like all of that insecurity, anxiety comes out in dreams. But And more recently, I've been having some more positive, happy dreams. So I'm like, maybe that means that I'm feeling more calm and relaxed despite the fact that I'm doing a million things in life. But I don't know, like, how do we, is there a way to decode what this means? Yeah. I mean, so all, all dreams, everybody's dreams are characterized by this high emotion and by bizarreness also. Um, <clears throat> I think that dream content might not be the thing that we sometimes think it is about, you know, your deepest insights into your unconscious, but instead essentially random activity blasting into these areas and the, the, the connections in your brain that are hot from the day's activity, when you blast random activity in, those tend to get replayed. And so your dreams will tend to reflect things you saw or did during the day, but almost like you're on psychedelic drugs in the sense that the whole network's just running a little bit differently. And so you have these very loose associations. And what happens is when we wake up, actually, there's two things that happen. When we wake up and you tell your spouse, hey, I dreamt this and this and this, you're, you're actually adding a whole layer of interpretation on top of what you actually saw when you were asleep. But but more than that, the whole experience of the dream is kind of like a Rorschach blot where you 
add your own interpretations onto it. As in, okay, well, this happens. So that must mean X, Y, Z. Or like if a random person shows up that you haven't seen in 20 years or like your ex-boyfriend from high school um, or or someone I have dreams about people I don't even know. And I'm like, I've never seen them before in my life, but maybe my brain thinks I have or they're inventing them. To to your conscious (laughs) knowledge, you haven't seen them, but you certainly may have seen them. Wow. So I have these like memory files stored in my brain and it's just like a projector that's it's running like an algorithm. <laughs> it's just picking random assignments of things and mixing them together. Into yeah, my I dreams. mean, a dreams are an opportunity to sort of see behind the curtain. And, you know, the thing about dreaming about someone you haven't seen in 20 years is a good example of, you know, it's a demonstration that they are still there in your brain. You've, you know, you've recorded that activity and all it takes is just hitting some random synapses and then, whoa, there they are. Yeah, fascinating. I love that so much. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, well, what about um, creativity in the brain? So this was one of the reasons why we first met years ago. And like I was saying before, I was trying to understand if there are people that are inherently creative or not, or if it could be learned. And if that's a a logical like brain thing that you can do. And I, I think also the left brain, right brain myth is dispelled. But people used to say, you're either a right brain creative person or you're not. And so what do we know about creativity in the brain at the highest level? Yeah. So this is actually the topic of my previous book called The Runaway Species. And we we actually know quite a bit about this. Um, it turns out this is the basic software of the brain. You absorb things. You walk around the world. You see things. You read things. You hear things and so on. And what your brain is constantly doing is remixing all that stuff. So it's bending and breaking and blending all of the things that you absorb and spitting out new versions of it. And this is how all inventions get made. This is how you figure out what you're going to make for dinner, given what's in the cabinet. This is how you figure out what you're going to say next. Your your brain is simply remixing whatever diet of information you've consumed. And, you know, one of the myths about invention is that people have these sort of out of the blue moments and people love this kind of story, but it's totally untrue. Every invention has a clear genealogy that you can trace about, okay, well, there was this and there was this and, this, you know, and you just add these up and this was the logical next step and, and somebody's brain put these things together and, and there it is. And this doesn't diminish the beautiful act of creativity, but it is to say this idea of, you know, the lightning bolt uh, is, is not exactly true. Yeah. And so, the, you know, the good news here is that this is because this is the basic software of the brain, everybody's brain is doing it. And one of the important things for us, of course, is to 
make sure we're cultivating children to to express their creativity and have a lot of practice with this. And one of the things that I argue in the book that I think is really important is, you know, what happens in the arts and in the sciences is exactly the same creativity under the hood. It's taking things and and remixing them and, and putting out new versions of them. And so one of the things that's really important, I think, is to make sure that the arts are always taught in schools. This is, of course, the first thing that gets cut when there are budget squeezes. Um, but the arts give us an opportunity to explicitly or overtly bend and break and blend things and try out new styles. And learning that is exactly what are the tools that drive science forward. If you look at any scientific discovery, invention, insight, it's always saying, oh, you know, there was this and this and this. What if this thing? And then, you know, you come up with a hypothesis. And what we do in the lab, of course, is then, you know, we, we generate lots of hypotheses, most of which are wrong, but we come up with hypotheses and we test them and we see which one happens to possibly be right. So I totally agree with you on a bunch of this. It seems like creativity is broken down into a couple buckets, though. The more sort of logical problem solving version of creativity, like invention, I think, is solving a problem. Um, I think deciding what you're going to say next, what you're going to wear today, all of those things are kind of logical. But then there's like these creative geniuses uh, I think about like Michael Jackson or like the whole Mickey Mouse Club back in like the 90s. It was like Justin Timberlake and Christina, like that are five years old and can do these like wild things. Like they're just or artists that have never drawn before, but it can somehow just like pick up a, a pencil or a, a paintbrush. And it's a sort of beautiful. They have this natural skill. And I get that musically a voice is a skill and an instrument is a different skill, but like how would you talk about creativity in the arts and whether some of us have more of that? You know, a lot of musicians are the children of musicians, et cetera, um, versus something that can be learned. Yeah. OK, so there's a great there's a number of points to be unpacked here. One is that having particular skills like a great voice is different from being creative. You can be a great singer and super not creative at all. The second point is that we often love these myths of, let's say, the kid who picks up the paintbrush or the pencil and does these extraordinary things. But that actually never happens ever. So uh, just as an example, if you go to Barcelona, you'll see the Picasso Museum where you see all the things he did as a child. And he was extremely talented. By the time he was 16 years old, he was making oil paintings that were as good as anybody in the Renaissance with, um, yeah, but they were all realistic topics. So what happened is because he really perfected what had come before, He was then positioned to springboard off the top of that and do creative stuff and do things that no one had done before by remixing stuff. And, you know, everything that Picasso did was remixes. He looked at African masks in the museum. He looked at drawings that children do. He looked at all kinds of things and he mixed these and matched them and tried out different things. And by the way, it wasn't that he was just sort of, you know, picking up a pencil and doing this magical stuff. He made hundreds and hundreds of drawings and sketches and tried different things out. You know, he made 57 different variations of um, Las Meninas, um, which was a painting by, 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 by Velasquez. He made 57 different versions of that, just trying different things out. But this is what characterizes all real creative geniuses is generating options. Uh, and by the way, you know, the 10,000 hours of practice at something, but it's the... It's the thing of trying to feel out the border of the possible by trying many different things and seeing seeing what's what's working and what's providing something new. 
I, I also want to say that there are two sides to creativity. One is generating new remixes of stuff. And the other is filtering, is saying, okay, look, I've come up with, you know, 20 ideas, but actually these 19 really suck and I'm just getting rid of them. And, and both of those sides are important. And by the way, when we ask this question of, you know, could AI be creative? The answer is AI is great at the first thing. It's great at saying, hey, I'm going to mix 100,000 versions of, you know, cat pictures and Picasso paintings and put new things together, which is terrific. But it has no way of knowing what resonates with a human. And so it's no good at the filtering part. So when you see somebody post on Twitter and say, hey, look, here's this awesome thing by Google Deep Dream. They've looked through thousands and thousands of these to come up with the one that sort of makes sense to us as humans. Yeah, that's so interesting. Speaking of AI, how will AI impact creativity going forward? You said that maybe they can't filter it, but I've also seen uh, there's a there's a website called copy.ai. You sort of like write in the type of thing you want to say on like a landing page or a website or in a tweet or an Instagram post, and it like makes it better. And it generally is better. And it's so it feels filtered. Like, is this going to be the future? Like, do we think that computers are going to advance enough to take over some of these core functions? I don't know. You know, I've been looking at the writing that AI can do, and it can do very impressive things as a statistical exercise. You know, saying, oh, this word usually follows this one, and you get these things, and these concepts often go together. But it's actually very different than a beautiful piece of writing, let's say a novel. Because in order to write a novel, you have to have some understanding of what it is like to be the reader, what the reader cares about. And so AI, at the moment anyway, is doing all kinds of beautiful stuff, but it is nowhere near actually making something that a human cares about. Yeah. And I think that's the general consensus, right, is like a lot of logistical jobs might get overtaken by AI, but the creative jobs are going to be the ones that really matter the most going forward, which is really exciting to me. Yeah, I, t I totally agree. There's never been a more important time to make sure that we're teaching our children creativity. And unfortunately, the way school systems always go is they say, wow, look, we've got budget constraints and so on. So we're going to make sure we teach for the test and we're going to make sure that we can give the students a bunch of stuff and then they regurgitate it to us. And then that's the end of the quarter or the semester. But it's actually really easy for schools to implement this at essentially no extra cost, which is all they need to do is squeeze out another week of the material so that they teach kids, hey, look, here's X, Y, Z, A, B, C, here's all the things you need to know. And now in the final week, I want you to springboard off the top of this and put all this together in your own version. Do a remix, do a bending, a breaking, a blending, and come up with your own version. And if we simply teach that to kids all the time, then we have prepared them for the jobs that will exist in 2040 that we don't even have names for. We can't even guess what jobs are going to be available. There's no real point in us teaching for the jobs that are here right now. Mm, I love that. So you've said the remix a lot of times. I'm getting the sense that the remix is really key to sort of practicing this, flexing this creative muscle in the brain taking a bunch of things, remixing them, and then filtering them down is really the creative process. And that the other bucket is skills and sort of remixing and filtering are two different types of things. And that to have skills, just like anybody else, you need to put in what Malcolm Gladwell calls the 10,000 hours, right, of practice and work and just like start from nothing. It's going to be sloppy and you'll get better. Is that correct? Somewhat correct? Uh, that, that is correct. Now, usually when we talk about skills like that, we're thinking about 
you know, uh, things you do with your body. Like if you want to be a great swimmer, a great violinist or a great chess player, you know, things like that, you need that 10,000 hours of work. But I think there's there's a third thing that's right in between the two here, which is kids need to go to school and learn all the stuff that humankind knows. There's tons of great stuff to learn and know. You need that in order to, to launch from there to do your own creative things um, because what that all that represents is the diet of information that you're taking in. And it would be, of course, it would be wrong to think a kid can just go and sit in the meadow and be creative and so on. You need this giant smorgasbord of all the things that have been invented before, artistically, scientifically, and so on, to say, ah, okay, I'm going to bend and break and blend this and come up with a new thing, the next step. Mm-hmm. Totally. I wanted to be an inventor when I was a little girl. Um, I didn't know that that could also be an entrepreneur. But it's like so I'm inventing a new thing in my head every day. I'm not always acting on it. But uh, because I know material science the other day, you and I are both on a podcast right now. We're recording your it looks like in a house. I'm in an office. And what sucks is there's noise around us. And so like my recent invention was a podcast recording umbrella. And it sort of like goes above your head. It's like made out of soundproof material. You can expand the panels to be like as broad of a circumference as needed to really encapsulate the sort of desk or table you're at. And you're just in a bubble for that one hour, then you can take it down. And um, (laughs) I'm never going to make this. And if someone out there wants to make this, but I think it's an interesting example to your point of like, I had this problem, which is like, I keep getting interrupted when I'm doing podcast interviews or there's random noises in the background. And most people are like in their closets right now, working from home, trying to record anything or being on Zoom in the middle of their house. And so just like a little bubble space, a pop up, you know, pop up space for an hour would be the best fit. And it doesn't take me tons of creative ingenuity. It just takes me like the ability to know how to solve a problem. Uh, If I were going to actually do this, the materials I would use, how I would construct it, you know, et cetera. And and I think that people today get so stuck because they just don't take these ideas ahead. And I really want to encourage anyone listening, like we're all on the same playing field here. Like it's just a matter of willpower, courage, and like talking to people and figuring out how to do it, you know, uh, to get it done. So sorry, that's my little entrepreneurship rant Um, and invention Amen, sister. No, I couldn't agree (laughs) with you more. One of the most fascinating things about the history of invention is the number of people who have thought about any invention at any given time, but typically it's only one person who actually presses forward with it, even if the other people maybe write it down or write a paper on it or something. And so there is really something to be said, not only for the inventiveness part, but for the courage to move forward and saying, I'm going to put this into the world. Totally. My mom, who was like a self-employed court reporter my whole childhood, um, told me when I was a baby in the sort of mid 1980s, she had this brilliant idea for a car seat that doubled as a baby stroller. And, you know, 20 years later, when I was having or 30 years, I guess when I was having kids, she was like, I had this idea in 1985. If only I would have acted on it then. I'm like, you could have. And I'm sure a, a million other people in this world had that idea. So to your point, it's that courage to forge ahead and believe in yourself and and figure it out. That's where most people get stuck. So anyways, we digress. You have also talked a lot about a thing called synesthesia. Can you tell us about what synesthesia means and how common it is for people? Yeah. So, okay, so anesthesia, of course, means no feeling, but synesthesia means joined 
feeling. And it turns out that about 3% of the population has this where they will, for example, look at letters or numbers and it'll trigger a color experience for them. So they'll say, oh yeah, J is red and the number five is purple and A is yellow and so on. And for them, it's just self-evidently true. It's not a hallucination. They can still tell you that what is on the on the piece of paper is written in black ink, but in their head, it always triggers a color experience. But there are many forms of synesthesia. You might hear something and it puts a taste in your mouth or it gives you a visual or you might taste something and puts a feeling on your fingertips. There's, there are at least over 100 forms of synesthesia that my colleagues and I have documented. One of the most common is, is what I call spatial sequence synesthesia, where a sequence like numbers or months of the year seem to have some spatial location in them. So someone might say, look, hey, you know, April is over here off my left shoulder and May is sort of down a little bit and then June goes up a bit and July is over here. And, you know, but these are all forms of synesthesia. And what it illustrates is, you know, the, we, we don't classify this as a disease or a disorder. This is just an alternative way of perceiving reality. And everybody sees reality differently than everyone else. And synesthesia just happens to be um, an area that I got very interested in about 20 years ago. I've been studying this for a long time. You know, as an example, a concrete, measurable example where this person's reality is different than this person's reality. Wow. Is this the same as like mnemonic devices? Like you're like, okay, David Eagleman, Eagle. I see a picture of an eagle flying above my head. Like it's like, is that the same? It's it's like that, except that it's not a chosen thing. It's just the way that the world is. It's, uh, you know, you don't get to choose whether to see the color or the feel the taste okay. in your mouth or the feeling on your fingertips. Yeah. So it's just naturally what some people's brains do. Exactly. And by the way, in answer to your question, they have a better memory. Typically synesthetes have a better memory Four things, the truth is that having a good memory doesn't really matter much nowadays, but like for phone numbers, if you were a synesthete and I told you my phone number, you might forget some of the digits, but you think, oh yeah, it had a nice autumn pattern to it. And so then you can kind of reconstruct the numbers based on the colors that you remember. Mm. So like the guy that memorized all the numbers of pi probably has synesthesia. Uh, that's right. Now you can't memorize all the numbers because it's infinite, but yes, the champion <laughs> well, has like, memorized 30,000 like digits. That's what yes, it is. <laughs> exactly. He, yeah, exactly. He he happens to have a five-fold synesthesia. So for him, each number has a number, a color, a size, a personality, and a gender. And so what? when he's memorizing 3.1415, there's a whole story landscape going on. That, you know, you can essentially tell a story. Okay, so then the big purple woman did this to the small green man who then, you know, said this to the yellow girl and so on. Wow, that's fascinating. 30,000 plus characters. That seems so intense. What about um, The Queen's Gambit? I'm assuming you watched this on Netflix. Um, I did. And but people I read that the are book. like chess champions. Okay. Yeah. Do those people have any sort of special brain hacks like this? <laughs> they know well, all the moves. They get like in the movie or in the show, she was like seeing all the moves in her head. Um, I don't, you know, I I don't you know how real that is. I know it's obviously a Netflix show, but you yeah. know, is that a brain <laughs> function? <laughs> The thing is, the, the Netflix show had to do this because otherwise you just see a woman sitting there thinking and it wouldn't be interesting visually. But but the, the, the fact is, this all has to do with brain plasticity. So take the Polgar sisters, which are real life uh, chess champions. So that's these three sisters who are all world champions of chess. And um, I wrote about them in, in my last book, Livewired. Their father decided at the beginning that he wanted to make them chess champions. So he trained them in chess. But this is the, related to this 10,000 hour issue. 
if you do this all the time and you really work at something, then you know they may or may not visualize it like she does in, in the in the Netflix movie, but but they know chess. Look, I just saw a YouTube video with Magnus Carlson, who's a, a world champion in chess, and you can put pieces on a board and say, what game is this from? And he says, oh, that was the 1989 playoff between so-and-so and so-and-so. He just he recognizes this stuff on the board. And it's not because it's not simply because he's a genius. It's because this is his diet. He consumes chess 24 seven. Um, you know, is I, memory I, is, something that can be strengthened just like creativity or like developing skills or like do some of us have better memories than others? Some of us have better memories than others. But yes, your memory depends on what you do and what is relevant to you. So, for example, Britt, you might, I, I don't know, but let's say you've got like a really good social memory and, and you think, oh, you know, I met that person five years ago at this event or something like that. But if you did chess all the time and that's what you got rewarded for and that's what you got praised for and so on, you'd be really great at memorizing uh, moves on the board. Okay, so it's a dopamine function, I'm assuming. So the, the dopamine is getting, every time I'm winning chess or I'm doing well with chess, I'm like, okay, I need to do more of this. I need to be better at this. I'm going to memorize this. That's right. It's now, like technically, it's a natural his... inclination. Or, yeah, sorry, that's right. That's right. the wrong brain chemical. Yeah, well, it, 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 dopamine <laughs> would be involved, but also acetylcholine, which is just another chemical that says, hey, there's something relevant going on here. Like if 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 chess is the thing for you through which you're meeting all your friends, through which you get all the attention, through which you're getting the trophies and so on, then you've got this acetylcholine going on that says, hey, brain, put more and more territory devoted to this thing. Mm. and vice versa right like if you were young and like your parents never praised you for something but your teachers all like you're gonna do things to try to earn praise um in places where you might not be getting fascinating um okay the last thing i want to talk about is our subconscious which i know you've also studied quite a bit i think it's so interesting right now in in the modern culture because we're there's a lot of people talking about intention and manifesting and listening to our gut and our subconscious, not our conscious. Like, is that a real thing? Is our subconscious a, a thing that we can take advantage of to sort of tap into what we really believe deep down inside? So here's what I'd say. I mean, the huge majority of what is of what makes you is all happening subconsciously. You don't have any access to it or any awareness of it. I mean, I mentioned at the beginning about these 86 billion neurons. You don't know anything about it. You can't even picture those 86 billion neurons. But that is you. And by the way, the reason we know that is because if you were to, let's say, hurt your pinky, lose part of your pinky in a car accident, you'd be sad about that, but you wouldn't be any different as a person. But if you lose an equivalently sized chunk of brain tissue, that changes you entirely. That can change your decision making, your risk aversion, your ability to see colors or name animals or uh, you know, a hundred other things that we see in the clinics every day. And that's how we know that what's happening in your brain is you. But the thing is, almost all of it is happening under the hood. So, you know, if like when I pick up my coffee cup here, I don't know how I do it. That's a we tremendously, co- yeah, we both have Yetis. <laughs> yeah, nice. Um, uh, you know, that's underpinned by a lightning storm of brain activity that moves my arm to the right location, picks it up, gets to my mouth. All I know is whether I spilled the coffee on myself or not. I don't have any idea how I'm doing this miraculous act. And it's, and it's not just, you know, it's getting a joke, recognizing a friend's face, falling in love, like driving a car, like everything that we do, we don't really have any knowledge of how we do it. Um, and if anybody's interested in this, my book Incognito was on, on this topic. But 
The thing I would say about should we listen to our unconscious or subconscious brain, those we can use those terms interchangeably. The, the issue is you are not one thing. You are actually made up of lots of different neural networks. And the way I describe it in the book is it's like a, a team of rivals. Um, you know, the way that Lincoln put together his presidential candidate with people of different political opinions. This is what you, so, so if I, Britt, put some warm chocolate chip cookies in front of you, part of your brain says, great, I'm going to eat that. It's a rich energy source. Other networks in your brain say, don't eat it. You're going to get fat. Other networks in your brain say, okay, I'll eat it, but I'll promise to go to the gym tonight. And you can, you can argue with yourself. You can make contracts with yourself. You can cajole yourself. You can cuss at yourself. Like who is talking to whom here? It's all you, but it's different parts of you. And this is all of what's running under the hood. And by the way, this is why we can make different decisions at different times about something. Mm. Sometimes you will give in to the temptation and eat the chocolate cake that's offered to you. And other times you won't eat it. Um, anyway, I, I bring all this up to say that this notion of, hey, should I listen to my unconscious or not is a very tricky thing. It's not nearly that straightforward a question because you have many different voices happening in your unconscious. So let's say somebody mm. puts the chocolate chip cookies in front of me and I say, yeah, I'm going to listen to my unconscious. I, you know, I could, I could, I could steer that either way to say, yes, well, my unconscious told me totally. to stuff the cookies in my mouth. Or I could say my unconscious told me that I don't want to be overweight. And so I'm going to not do that. There's no mm. single voice to listen to there. Uh, this brain thing is so confusing. Uh, I wish it was more straightforward. <laughs> I know. The weird um, part so is that we are brain owners, right? And we, we are I know. The, the lucky recipients uh, at the end of this, you know, who, who have this conscious awareness of the beauty and awe of life. But somehow we're made up of this biological stuff, which could go wrong at any yeah. moment, by the way. Yeah, it's very meta uh, at the end of the day. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. meta. So so what are the ways we could actually like improve our brain function as like there's a lot of this like brain longevity, clarity blah, 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 out in the market right now. Is any of that real? I mean, look, I think the best thing you can do for your brain is constantly seek challenges and novelty. That is the thing that has emerged. Um, and the reason is what your, you know, your brain is locked away in silence and darkness, and it is trying to make a model of the world and figure out how do I operate in the world? How do I talk to people? How do I start a company? How do I, you know, walk and eat and all this stuff? And if you're doing sort of the same thing day in and day out, then the model doesn't get challenged and says, okay, fine, I got this. I know exactly how to operate in this world. Um, but the problem is as you get older, your brain degenerates uh, sort of as a natural function. And then there's things like dementias, like Alzheimer's or PICS or vascular dementia, where you have a much faster degeneration of the tissue. But the point is, if you are challenging yourself, then you're constantly building new roadways and pathways and bridges in the brain. And that is critical. This is, by the way, this is not a speculation. I mean, this is proven. I'll, I'll just give you one example. There's this study that's been going on for a long time with nuns um, who live in convents who donate their brain upon their death. And so it turned out much to the researchers surprise that some fraction of these nuns had Alzheimer's disease, but nobody knew it when they were alive. They didn't have the cognitive wow. deficits that you normally associate with it. And it's because till their dying day, they lived in the convents. They had chores, responsibilities, they had conversations, they had fights with other nuns, they were played games, they had they were yeah, they were living a social life. And as a result, they were building all these new pathways all the time. And so the degeneration that was physically happening didn't really affect their cognition. In contrast, you know, many of us have parents or grandparents who are at an age where they their lives 
shrink and they don't spend social time anymore and they're not challenging themselves anymore. And then when they have problems with their brain tissue, it becomes obvious. So, you know, we like to leave our listeners with a little homework assignment every week. You're a professor. I just feel like you you probably have great assignments in general. Um, but what one thing would you tell our listeners to do this week in order to sharpen their own brains? Okay, that's easy. Um, seek novelty. And here's how I would recommend you do this. So tonight, uh, first, brush your teeth with your other hand. Um, it's not that hard. It's easy to do. If you are out driving post-pandemic, um, you know, if you drive to work, drive a different route home. Every single time you come home, just drive a different route. It's, it's not that hard to do. Rearrange your office. It's, it's not that hard. W one thing that I like to do, this drives my wife crazy, but, you know, like rearrange the artwork in your house, just whatever paintings you have up. It takes you 60 seconds. Just put this painting over here and that painting over there. Just, you know, rearrange your furniture. So you say, okay, I'm going to put the table over here now and I'm going to do a different thing, push my desk up against this other wall. All this is easy to do, but what it does is it challenges your brain to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to get off this path of least resistance and say, oh, hey, look at this. This is new. If you're wearing a watch, uh, put it on the other arm and try wearing your watch on your other hand. It, 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 these are all minor things, but it knocks your brain out of this automated zombiness so that it says, oh, hey, I'm, I'm actually paying attention to the world out there. And if you constantly do this sort of thing, challenge your brain, this is the best thing that you can do for your brain health. Yeah, I love that so much. Uh, the watch on my other wrist already feels awkward, though. Um, so does brushing my teeth. I hope my dentist doesn't care. Um, but the driving home the wrong way or a different way is really interesting because I've also heard it can it makes you feel like time is slower. Like when you're doing things that are novel, like time slows down instead of it's just like the day is gone. It's because you're doing the same routine every day versus these days that feel really long are when you have novelty and all these new ways of seeing things and doing things right because your brain's yeah, processing that's, it. That's exactly right. And this is something I've studied in my lab for a couple of decades. Uh, that's exactly it. So when you are driving the same route every day, you become an automatized zombie and, and it feels like it takes no time. As opposed to the very first day you do it, you say, whoa, it takes a long time to get to my new office. And after a while, it just takes zero time. Um, yes, but what happens when you pay attention to the world, when you're actually looking at what's going on around you, um, you lay down more memory. And the way that your brain judges time is by how much memory it has to draw on. And so that's how you, I'm not telling you how to live longer, but how to make it seem as though you've lived longer. <laughs> Exactly. This is why they say, like, as you get older, time goes by so much faster. It's because we're getting so much more automated in our life. Anyway, I love this so much. It's a great homework assignment, everyone. I hope you participate in it this week. Um, David, what is next for you and where can our listeners find more about what you are doing now, what you've done before and what you're doing next? Uh, I guess the place would be eagleman.com. I've got all my books on there. I'm running several companies now, and uh, I think all that can be found on the website. Um, yeah, and I'm about to start a, a podcast, which um, is going to be, unlike, unlike this one, it's going to be a 40-minute monologue where I introduce really wacky questions about the brain and then, uh, and then unpack those in 40 minutes. So this promises to be a ton of work for me, but I'm super excited about doing this. I've been thinking about doing it for a long time. So keep your eyes out for that in a few months from now. Any teaser topics that you can tell us about? Well, uh, related to the one we were just talking about, one of the topics is uh, does time actually run in slow motion when you are in fear for your life? Yes, love it.
David, thank you so much for your time today. And if you guys enjoyed the show at home, please rate and review it um, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Thanks for joining in. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks for listening to Teach Me Something New, a production of iHeartRadio and Britain Co. I'm your host, Britt Morin. Find more information about each episode at Brit.co slash listen. You can also find me on social media. I'm at Brit or follow us at Brit and Co. Teach Me Something New is executive produced by Ali Ives and Ali Perry with additional production and sound design by Mark Lemmerjazy and Aaron Peterson.